This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Tina Lupton, a historian of books and reading. This episode is about not having time to read. It's hard to find time for undistracted reading. And it's easy to blame modern developments like digital technology. But Tina Lupton says that people have been feeling this way for more than 200 years. For centuries, people have been struggling to balance a desire for undistracted reading with their professional and family duties. By studying past struggles to make time for reading, we can pick up strategies to apply in our own lives and understand why finding time for reading is not just a personal, but a political issue. Tina Lupton, welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about not having time to read, or at least feeling like we don't have enough time to read. I feel like a lot of people identify with that, right? Like they feel like they want to read more, they can't, they don't have time. So what's the received wisdom today? What are the assumptions today about having time to read, not having enough time to read, finding time to read? Well, I think that the received wisdom today is that we've kind of become our own worst enemies when it comes to a particular kind of settled reading. We've become these distracted readers. Often it's about print reading as a thing that we're not doing. So like reading digitally, but not paper So we're reading digitally books. because yeah. that allows us to switch in a rapid succession of engagements with different kinds of texts that catch our attention, mm. as opposed to print reading that locks us into a kind of journey through a text simply by virtue of its format. I think when we talk about loss, we're often talking about that feeling of entering into a journey with a text that would have precluded other forms of distraction. Yeah, like immersed us or sort of, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. but for me, part of the interest in this topic was my sense that some of those conversations have been ongoing for a long time. Mm. Almost as soon as people in the 18th century had access to texts on a large scale in reasonably affordable ways, they began to worry that they weren't finding the time to read enough of them or to read them in the ways they wanted. The feeling of not having enough time has coincided with there being a surplus of reading material. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I was wondering when you were saying um, a minute ago, you know, now we feel like the internet is bad, reading, reading books and print and paper is good. Yeah. But it sounds like what you're saying is actually, even when there was only paper, there was still Different that Different kinds of paper. Like at that time, there were some kinds of print that people felt was kind of like distracting and fragmented in the way that the internet now... Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, what was the state of print in the 18th century? Are there like technological changes? I mean, certainly people did have more text and new technologies for printing and distributing them rapidly in a way that made it feel like you were getting a newspaper very quickly at the same time as everybody else in the country was getting a newspaper. So it sounds like this idea that we associate now with the internet as being, yeah, hot off the press. Yes. So There's no longer any presses, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. That hot off the press feeling, which promoted reading in some ways, but also 
infused really with this sense of urgency or pressure that I think has stayed with us. A lot of the people that I study in the 18th century were women mm. who were actually spending their whole days writing and reading letters, doing various kinds of secretarial work. It wasn't that they weren't engaged with texts, but they saw themselves as never settling down to read the kinds of texts that they imagined that they should be reading. Generally, that was older texts, classical texts, maybe. Mm. And instead of doing that, they were reading the daily news. They were reading frothy kind of new fiction. Well, because, yeah, it's like secretarial work. I mean, I feel like a part of many people's working lives is actually a lot of reading you know, if you're doing any kind of like admin stuff yeah, or, you know, reading like, all the time. We're, yeah. we're reading all the time. I, I mean, this worth kind of emphasizing that. I yeah. think that more people are reading more texts more of the time than ever before in history. Yeah. So all of these conversations about the loss of reading involve a kind of fallacy. And you have to really dig away to think about what it is that people are actually mourning and what people are longing for, yeah. what it is that people thought was there before, because it certainly isn't in quantifiable terms. It's not a loss of engagement with text. Right, yeah. So can you tell me about some specific 18th century people and how they dealt with this feeling that some kinds of reading were distracting them from other kinds of reading? I mean, one of the women who was doing lots and lots of reading and writing all day long but not doing the kind she wanted is a woman called Catherine Talbot who worked in the household of the archbishop. She was his kind of adopted daughter. He exploited her in all kinds of ways, but he also provided her with a living. She didn't have to get married. She didn't have children. But some of the people I look at are men who had childcare duties. There were plenty of early deaths in the 18th century of women that meant that there were men who were also struggling to reconcile family with having a life of reading. One of the readers yeah. that, I, that I write about is William Godwin, who was a notoriously good reader, a very learned man. But he was mm. also committed to going to the theatre. He raised, as a single father, his child as well as his stepdaughter. He was the partner of Mary Wollstonecraft, and when she died, he, mm. he, he kept this household together that involved, you know, I mean, probably not parenting as we would think about it, but he was tugged in lots of different directions. I mean, throughout his life, one of the ways that he maintained his life as a reader was by ring-fencing very carefully these hours of the early morning, okay. reading old stuff. And for mm. him, that was what it was about. So reading old stuff that didn't need to be consumed because it was the news of the day, because it didn't tug on him in that way. But the rest of the day he spent paying visits, writing letters, going to the theatre, reading the current stuff that he needed to consume in order to stay up to date. So I guess he wouldn't have described the hours in the morning as ones where he read as opposed to the rest of the day, which often involved reading and writing. But he did see them as hours where he would indulge in these kind of leisurely practices of consuming texts that were not immediately current. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's bringing up a number of um, questions for me. Um, yeah, so, f- I mean, firstly, like, I think that's something that we... we s- still recognize today is this sort of yeah like certain types of reading as well as certain kinds of like 
duties or work that we have to do, it sort of like tugs us away from where we want to be. Mm-hmm. And is that part of the fantasy, you know, both then and now <clears throat> is like a life of reading is also a life of like not being pulled left and right and not having these sort of yeah, like exactly. This might be a good yeah. time to pour sure, some tea. We, we yeah. Pour some tea? yeah. Let's see if it actually is yeah. looking I feel like with herbal teas they can just continue steeping indefinitely. If you'd like some lemon, ask yourself. So, in some ways, is like this fantasy of a life of reading. Is it like a subset of um, just like a life of leisure? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I mean, I have a complete romance about what that heavy, intense <laughs> reading is, but I also feel it's important that we caution ourselves about yeah. romanticizing that too much, partly because. The people who've had access to that experience of reading have always been people in a very particular class position, people Mm. whose access to text has been prepared by them not being workers, not having children to take care of, not having households to run, not having food to prepare, these kinds of things they were not doing for themselves this is easy to romanticize, but it actually doesn't look very pretty when you get down to the details of what that was like for a certain kind of moneyed man of leisure or a certain kind of Oxbridge don. So yeah, these very privileged people, these people who had free time, who didn't have to work that much, right? I get, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, there are sort of powerful fantasies connected to what a life of reading might look like. One of them, I think, is retirement it's a real and personal fantasy I think for most people who do read books and it is also how lots of people spend their retirement it really does happen I mean my mother does have a book club she's in her 70s that book club they get through serious amounts of literature for most of them that is a point of fulfillment that they've been looking forward to for many years where they've been working yeah so while people are working, they can fantasize about being done with work forever so they can finally focus on reading. But you also mentioned Oxford Dons, uh, where presumably their working life is already all about reading. So can you say a bit more about that fantasy of a life of reading? Okay, so at Oxbridge Dodd is like the perfect lifestyle for reading because you... So you, that's Oxford or Cambridge. It's Oxford or like Cambridge, these residential old colleges. Elite universities. Old elite universities where traditionally the teachers would have been men and they would have lived in a college and they would have had somebody preparing the meals three times a day and having and lighting their fires and bringing their tea. So like a life absolutely set up so they could just, just read. read. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, that is an appealing fantasy, even if it's a very exclusive it one. It is an appealing fantasy. I, but also but, who's doing that work, right? But it's who's doing not, the cooking yeah, and Yeah, I mean, it's premised on a very uneven distribution of time right and leisure time yeah so i find that that helps me understand my own situation better because you said that this fantasy is premised on a very uneven distribution of leisure time so what i'm taking from that is that it's not a personal failing of mine that i can't find time for these like 
big uninterrupted stretches of reading, it's actually part of a bigger political issue about who does what kind of work and how much leisure time people get. Exactly. So one question that I, I, one issue that I want to go back to, partly because I feel like I want some advice, you know, William Godwin made time in his day, right, like specific time of every day to do this type of reading. Um, And that idea of kind of like, yeah, like when in your daily routine you build in reading of that type, do you, is there a sort of right, like is there a good way to do that? What's the best way to do that? Do you have your own, you know, way of making that work? I do sort of observe life practices with this question in mm. mind. Like everyday um, life. Yeah, and I'm like, where does this, how, do, how, do, how are people managing this? Like, how, how does it work? And one thing I would say, I mean, I spend a lot of time in Scandinavia. People in Scandinavia read a lot. That is just statistically true. It has partly to do with class and the history of education and leisure in that context. One thing I would say is that it also has to do, I think, with fairly traditional practices of keeping Sunday as a day. I'm really interested in Sundays as something that get marked off quite early on for people from work life. Yeah, in the Christian context, that was the day of not working. Yeah, Yeah. and a lot of Scandinavian families keep a sort of screen-free Sunday, which Mm. I think is an interesting thing to try. I saw that on, on the TV show Transparent as well. Like they did that with um, it's about a Jewish family, but so it was like yeah. not having f- not using phones on yeah, a Saturday. Exactly. Yeah. So that kind of I mean I'm quite into these kinds of interleaving of different sorts of media experience. I think it's like it being one big blur that can be hard. I'm not sure that I think people shouldn't have phones or be doing this kind of distracted reading. I think there's all kinds of assets to it. I think it's quite clever. I admire my students for being really good at it. But I do think it's good to find ways of breaking it up. And the other things that Danes, for instance, do is they all go to their summer houses on the weekend and in the summer, and many of them don't have, like, don't have don't Wi-Fi, have internet. don't have connection <laughs> yeah. there. So it's like you play board games, you go for walks and you read books. So basically so your advice spaces. is move to Denmark. No, That's what I'm it's hearing. actually not. My advice is just to like mix it up to create yeah. sort of temporal and spatial patches of... Yeah, of, of, like of, not being of, all or nothing about yeah, it. Yeah, to have sort of different modes of attention where you actually try and regulate that in your own life. I think it works. I think you can do it. So. Yeah. 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 So, Tina Lupton, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was really fun. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Tina discussing how 20 years of reading other books affected her experience rereading the novel Magic Mountain. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HowToReadNow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen. And by me, Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.